everyone, I'm Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Dr. Kathy King and I want you to know you are important to us. We are thrilled that you're here with us today for another episode of Writing Works Wonders. Welcome to Writing Works Wonders. We're so pleased you're with us for episode 118 as our guest author is Eloisa James otherwise known as Mary Bly. We're so pleased to have you with us for this exciting episode with our New York Times bestselling author who specializes in historical fiction. We know it will be an amazing show. So buckle up, Buttercup. It's time to explore the creative world of writing with your friends at Writing Works Wonders. I'm Dr. Kathy King, and I'm so pleased to introduce you to our fabulous co-host, Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Hey, Kathy. Hi, everybody. And I have a fabulous co-host, too. And I'm so blessed to be able to call her my friend. And if you want to know why I call her the master of the universe, you'll have to check it out in our web design for authors book. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Kathy. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Great to be here with you again and with our special guest. And I'd like to just give a little background information about Eloise James before we begin our interview. Eloisa James is a New York Times bestselling author with many novels of historical fiction genre. These compelling works span several eras, including the Regency, Georgian, and many others. I know many of us have enjoyed her books. From her website, Eloisa says, I write novels as Eloisa James and Mary Bly. But when I'm not writing, I'm Professor Bly, who teaches Shakespeare at Fordham University. She also goes on to say that she sometimes thinks of herself, I would say, as Batman, changing clothes based on her career at the time and her identity. We know this will be an exciting interview. For more information about Eloisa James and Mary Bly, visit her website at eloisajames.com. Over to you, Cheryl. Thank you. Hello, Eloisa. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate your graciousness and we are so honored you're here. Thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to start with your background and your parents, who they were and how they influenced your creative writing. Okay, thank you for that question. My father was a poet, Robert Bly, um, who won the National Book Award for Poetry when I was a child. And my mother was a short story writer named Carol Bly, who um, had a movie made out of one of her stories by Sundance Studio, Robert Redford's outfit. And basically, I grew up in a household that was dictated by literature. We did not have a television we did not eat white sugar. Um, my mother was an early proponent of, of um, the idea that, that processed food and sugar is bad for you. And so I grew up on a farm with tons and tons of books and no television. And basically, if there was a vacation, my parents' question was, what are you going to write? What are you going to do? What's your project going to be? So um, they trained me to be exactly who I am, although the genre that I chose to write in is not 
one that they would prefer, would have preferred. They both passed uh-huh. away. The question that ties into this, with your parents having their work published, when you decided to go on to publish, did you have those connections? Were they the conduit for your connections? Or did you have to do the query letter? And at that time, it was through the U.S. Postal Service snail mail. So I'm just wondering um, how it all started for you. Um, well, no, my parents' connections, such as they were, would have been completely useless to me because I was mm-hmm. writing historical romance and uh, this is a very different set of editors. I will say on the one side, when my father wanted money, when I was a kid, for example, we went to live in England for a year, we went to live in Norway for a year, he would apply for an artistic grant, say with the National Endowment for the Humanities, but he would also write off to HarperCollins, which was his publishing company of many, many years, and ask for an advance for a book. And my sister and I have discussed several times the effect this had on us as children, because we did get a distinct sense that if you needed some money, you should just write a book and someone will give you money for it. And so even though, you know, their editors and so on would never have been useful to me, that idea that you can write and someone will pay you for it was built into my DNA. And it gave me a confidence that I see many young writers and beginning writers lacking. And I wish I could share with them because if you write something good, somebody will pay for it. So just to go to the second half of your question, I did not have any, um, no, no links with my parents' editors or agent, but I wrote a book after because I needed money. I my I had student loans and my husband's from Italy. And he said, we can't have a second child until we pay off your student loans. He, of course, was perfectly happy with one child. I grew up in a big family and I wanted more than one. So I had to pay off those loans. So just as my father did, I thought, well, all right, I'm going to write a book. I enjoyed reading historical romance a great deal. And by then I was a professor. So I thought I'm a Shakespeare professor. So the past is something I'm used to writing about and reading about. And I thought, all right, I'll write a historical romance. So I wrote one. I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. We had no money. My husband and I were both assistant professors. So we didn't have any money to join like the Romance Writers of America or to take a creative writing class or anything like that. So I just uh, bought, you know, figured out from the books that I liked best why I thought they were bestsellers. And then I created my own plot and came up with a book that I thought was akin to them in terms of bestseller qualities. And I, as you say, back then it was snail mail, well over 20 years ago now. And I wrote a letter and I Xeroxed one chapter of the book and attached it. Mm-hmm. And then I bought a book that was a book of agents. And I just sent off 10. I believe I started with 10. And I started in the back of the agency book because I thought everyone else would start at the beginning. So the outcome of that is that my agent is Kim Witherspoon because she was in the W's. And I'm happy to say that these many years ago, she selected my book from the slush pile and sold it in an auction, which is when more than one publishing house bids. And it was a few thousand dollars over my student loans. So that's great. It was a lovely thing. Yes. And I, I, um, I had to write three books for that amount of money, but I wrote the three books Mm -hmm. and got pregnant. And so it was very satisfying. (laughs) 
<laughs> Speaking, of, I love your memoir. It's such a great way to write a memoir. It's really oh. uh, interesting thing. I'm appreciating it. So well, just to yeah. explain to people that book is Paris in Love. It's about it's a memoir I wrote about a year when we lived in Paris. And what happened was my mother died of breast cancer, and I was uh, I got the you know I I came down with it as well a couple of weeks after she died. She died of ovarian cancer, but she'd had breast cancer. And so I didn't have her. She was an early caught case, thank goodness, based on my family history. And um, we sold our house. We sold our cars. We uprooted the kids and we moved to Paris. And Mm -hmm. I wrote this book in Paris that is about the walks I took in Paris. And then they're very short essays. And it's it's designed to try to bring you into the moment when I was living there, to try to give you a sense of exactly what I was seeing but also say that people who are nursing or working or whatever can pick it up and put it down. Mm -hmm. Like my historical romances that I hope you pick them up and you don't want to put them down, but Mm -hmm. Paris love you're you can dip in and dip back out. Yeah. Oh, I figured if I want to sleep last night, I had to put it down. (laughs) (laughs) But I plan to finish it this weekend. And (laughs) Yeah. Eloisa Sounds Regency. How did you come up with the pen name Eloisa James? Well, as I told you, I got pregnant, right? Because the minute I got that contract, I got pregnant. So we were in Florence because my husband is Italian. And we went by a lamppost and it said, Chiama Eloisa, call Eloisa, lose 20 pounds in 20 days. And I said, that's a wonderful (laughs) name for the baby because I had this (laughs) pregnant and I wanted a name that would work in Italy and in America and I always liked you know Eloise at the plaza there's those funny mm-hmm. children's books mm-hmm. and my husband was horrified he said Eloisa is a nouveau riche name you cannot name our child Eloisa <laughs> fine I will name myself Eloisa because you know just the the I had to I had to copyright my novels or my publishing house wanted to know how to publish the novels just right when this was happening, um, when I was mm-hmm. pregnant. So, so yeah, I named Anna, mm-hmm. Anna, which is a nice non Greek mm-hmm. Italian name that works in America and in Italy. And I named myself Eloisa. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Love how those things happen. Mm-hmm. Kathy, thank you so much for being with us, Eloisa. Um, it's a pleasure. You're you're a professor at Fordham University, as we mentioned, and a writer of romance or historical fiction. What's even a little more curious is that your expertise area is Shakespearean literature. Shakespearean drama. Yeah. Shakespearean drama. How or what have you seen as advantages to these dual careers? Are there any How have they dipped together, as you would say? Oh, there's a great deal of overlap. I am so lucky because for the last 20 years, I've taught Shakespeare every week in both semesters. I had a lot of time and a lot of thought to figure out how he designs those plays 
Rodriguez and how he became original and how he gets over various problems with time, for example. If you don't read the plays totally carefully, you don't realize that, for example, Othello, which is a very famous play, cannot happen in the time zone that it's allowed. I learned how to put some things forward that you want the reader to notice and to kind of drop other things into the back that you don't want the reader to notice because otherwise they'll realize that you're writing a fantasy, which I am because historical romance is is fantastical. It is an escape literature. So I learned a huge amount from that, but I also learned how to be original while writing something that has been written before. So just to take um, a very common example, Romeo and Juliet is adopted from a poem by Arthur Brooke called Romeo's and Juliet. And the thing that Shakespeare does is completely change Juliet's character. You know, she's the first woman on the English stage to ask a man to marry her. She she straight out says, I'm going to send you a ring. He never mentions a ring. She talks about how much she's looking forward to the wedding night to cons consummating the marriage. And one of the things I learned from that is that you could be writing in a genre fiction, in a romance where it has to end happily. You can be entirely creative within the bounds of the plot that you're given. And Shakespeare did it over and over again. So we know there was a Hamlet on the stage before his Hamlet came along, but his Hamlet is a very distinct character who, you know, delays and is agonized and suicidal, etc. And so for me as a genre fiction writer and as a pop fiction writer, I could not have had a better person to apprentice myself to than the most popular pop, you know, dramatist of the time because he was considered very lowbrow extremely popular, but very lowbrow. So I've learned a lot and I'm, I'm hugely grateful for it. I'll say another thing that's great for me is that I teach young people all the time. So, you know, mm -hmm. my, I teach, I do teach some grad classes, but mostly I teach undergraduates. So they are, you know, 19 to 22 and I watch them. And, you know, if you're writing romance over a long period of time, our sexual mores have changed remarkably from when I started so a pirate book, for example, where a woman is snatched off the beach and taken to, to a boat was extremely popular back in the 1990s. Not so much anymore. There's a major consent issue there. So I'm lucky in that I am constantly with an age group that's not my own. Because if you want to have a long career in romance, you have got to stay observant of the ways in which people want to fall in love and the ways in which they want to talk about sex or the ways in which they want to be a woman in a romantic relationship, no matter who the relationship is with. So I'm also very grateful for that as the students tell me about Romeo and Juliet, they tell me about themselves. That's fantastic. I really love how you explain literary analysis and how it's informed your career. Uh, your choices, and the development of your work. What a terrific example that is for both our readers on the show and also people who are writers. How about historical research? You work uh, across a couple of different eras in your writing. How do you pursue that research, and how much research have you had to do to be able to do that successfully? Oh. I have a PhD in, in Renaissance literature. I actually have a master's as well in the same field. So I do have a strong grasp of the 1600s, but of course the 1600s is not, are not the era in which romance is popularly placed. Historical romances sell if they are Regency or Georgian. So 
Jane Austen, think either Marie Antoinette with high wigs, but more cheerful, or Jane Austen with the little dresses. So I have learned a huge amount about those eras. I will say probably one of the things that is the easiest for me is that I teach drama. So I teach people in the past who are walking and talking to each other, as I said, practically every day. So that gives me the ability to kind of slip into a sense of how people talked in the past. Not such a big difference between, say, 1600 and 1800, if you put it into a popular romance. However, I do have to do a lot of uh, research because while historical romance spans a, a big span in terms of how accurate it is, um, you have some historical romances which basically just are costume dramas. So it's very, very modern and but they wear different clothing, which, you know, is is one very popular way of writing. Or there are ones that are rigidly historical. Um, we have romances that are actually published, for example, in near medieval English, which for me is too far in the other direction. I'm somewhere in the middle. But I think that for a historical romance to really earn its title, it's great if one of the main crises of the novel can actually come out of a historical fact. So to give you an example, I have a book called When uh, When the Duke Returns, which is based on a an early marriage, which happened quite a lot at that period of the or affianced uh, when they were you know children. The Duke has left and has been gone for a million years. When he comes back, his father is dead. His 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 would be wife is still waiting around to get, get married. But his father was a Georgian aristocrat, and he put in the first toiletry pipes and this is of course historical they all rotted because they built those out of wood the early ones so the house reeks so when the duke returns is sort of a double entendre because on the one hand he's got this woman waiting for him who's literally doesn't know at all and on the other he has a disaster going on in his house it smells like an enormous toilet so Something like that. Like I have another book where um, that goes that that springs out of a problem to do with wigs because in the Georgian period they wear those very tall wigs, and in order to get the ships and everything to stick on top of the wig, they <laughs> would melt candle wax and they would pour stuff in there. You couldn't wash, you know, more than once every other week. And I have a heroine who is allergic to the violet scented powder that they used to drench those <laughs> wigs and your hair in. So I I like to find something like that and make it into a part of the book. So when you leave, when you finish the book, you haven't been reading a lecture on, say, England in 1812, but you've learned something, right? You've learned something, but you've learned it in a, in a, in a fun way. And you come away, you know a lot more about Georgian wigs than you did before, but you there's never been an information dump where it's just on the page. So for those of you who are writers, or would-be historical romance writers or historical fiction writers listening to this, I think that is the biggest killer of sales. If you have an information dump, readers will stop reading. They are reading for your story, and the rest is is gravy. Very well said. Thank you for bringing us to school today. <laughs> but your books are very powerful in that respect. You, they're tremendous examples of exactly what you just described, um, now pulling back the curtain and realizing how you do that is very informative and delightful. You know, I read the book about the duchesses and 
And in that, the strong female protagonists, even in the time, and how you learned chess and the power of chess uh, during that and the popularity of chess in that period. So, so very wonderful the way that you wove that into the story. And as you said, you walk away with something new, but you don't feel like you sat through a lecture. Thank you. Yeah, that book is Desperate Duchesses. And it's, right. yeah, it springs yeah. from the fact that uh, a man and woman could be alone in a room together if they were playing chess. It was considered such an intellectual game that you wouldn't fall into the bed, even if the bed was right next to you. Huh. <laughs> so, Very, very intriguing book. Very intriguing. Thank Over to you, Cheryl. Speaking of the women, your books are filled with empowering women who, of course, like to break some of the rules of society sometimes. And how do you build your characters, how they can be characters of the era, but relational to people of today that make your books so people yearn for the next one? Thank you. Well, one thing I'd say is that um, when we look at the past, I write about extremely privileged women. I said already, my dad was a poet, which means if you know anything about poetry, it means we had very little money. And so you write about, you as a writer, you have to write about things that attract you. And for me, not worrying about money is something that I take extremely seriously. So the women I write about are very privileged. If you look at the historical record, those same women born into money, born into education, were able to do extraordinary things and did do extraordinary things. So often when I have um, a woman, for example, inherit a business of toilets, which is in one book called Would Be Wallflower, that actually is historically correct. Women often inherited, say, a business from their father or from their husband and ran it perfectly well. Um, that goes back to the 1600s. You also have women estates and sort of being the business manager for these estates. And so they had to learn accounting. They had to learn all kinds of skills because they were running the buttery. They were making beer. They were doing all these things. So in one way, I write fantasies because all of my people are privileged. In another way, I'm really writing about things that were happening at the time. Where fantasy comes in in my book, in my books, often has to do with the fact that my heroes are respectful. I I have a great dislike of bullying men. Um, so I like to have an alpha hero who is respectful and recognizes the power and the uh, worth of the woman he's with. And I'm not so sure that happened on a regular basis, or at least certainly not with dukes to the extent to which I have created dukes who who are these paragons of men. I appreciate that. And you're giving that fantasy, but also giving women in today's society that hope too, that people then did it and they can do it now. Right. I've had a number of readers write me. I mean, many, many over the years write me and say, um, when I was reading about your heroine who thought she wasn't worth enough, you know, because, because she thought she was curvy or she thought she was unattractive or she thought whatever she thought, and that mm -hmm. turned out not to be the case, it's made a difference for them. So I mm -hmm. have, I, I really love those letters from people saying this, this made a difference to me. 
um, my my latest book is called Not That Duke, and my heroine uh, wears spectacles, which very few women did at the time. But you know, she's she can't see if she doesn't wear them, so she gets a lot of friction from various people, including her aunt, who brings her up, saying, you you know, you shouldn't wear them; they make you ugly. You should. But she says, I'm going to blunder around on the ballroom floor. Absolutely not. And so she fights that back. And she's also freckled, which at the time was viewed as an abomination. And that book did extremely well last summer. And I got a lot of letters from women saying they grew up like me. I grew up with glasses. I grew up with freckles. I grew up with red hair in a small farm town where I did not fit in because my father was a poet and not a farmer. And so it's fun to take those feelings that are still going on today and put them into a book and show women who may not fit in for whatever reason that if they value themselves and they send up, a man will come along or a woman or whatever person will come along and value them the same way. Thank you. We'll turn it over to Chanel. First up, we have Carol Mackey. <laughs> Thank you so much. How interesting is this? All of the pieces, the way you develop characters and the relation to the, to the past, the history, it's really interesting. I've really enjoyed your books. I happen to write poetry but I'm always interested and, and will ask you, what's your writing process in a day-to-day, hour-to-hour? How do you deal with de- deadlines? Or, or what is the way that you uh, can get books out in, a, in the timely manner they, they need to get out? Um, that's just so interesting because all of us do it so differently. I'd love to, have, to know how yeah. you do yours. My process has really changed from when I had small children. <laughs> I just wrote whenever I could. But now my children are grown and I write in writing sprints, which are 25 minutes long. They're called Pomodoros. And um, it's, you know, it's one of those brain scanning things that they figured out that the brain really only functions to, with a strong focus for 25 minutes in a row. And so I started doing these with friends and I do them all the time. I have various groups of friends that I do writing sprints with. We'll just be on Zoom, start a clock for 25 minutes, turn off our computers, turn off our, our you know, mute our things, write for 25 minutes, then turn the video back on, turn the sound back on and talk to each other about what we were doing. Then we go get a cup of tea or go to the bathroom, come back do another one. That has had a tremendous effect on my, both of my creativity, I think, and on my productivity for certain, because I'm, I'm not just the um, Shakespeare professor. The last five years, I've been the chair of the English department at Fordham, which is about 12% of all the classes taught at any given time at Fordham college and university. So it's a, it's a lot of professors and a lot of organization. And the only way I can have been able to keep writing is by saying in this minute, in this 25 this is all I'm doing so I don't multitask in that 25 minutes and I also think that's really important I think when I started writing that you know I didn't have a cell phone and if I was multitasking it was because some kid was screaming now you know there's so many things to distract you at any given time so since you're a poet I'll just tell you that my father's process was he couldn't even write in the house because there were so many children we had six children there at various points um He had a little farmhouse and he moved onto the land and he would go out there and he just wrote. Every morning he wrote a morning poem, he called it, and then he would throw it into a trunk. And there were, by the time he died, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of poems in there. And then he would pull one out and work on it for two months, throw it back in the trunk. 
So he felt, and I have to agree that writing is really about editing. It's about being able to clear your, your mind and focus, write a first draft, recognize that you're not writing anything as good, but somewhere in that 25 minutes or in the next 25 minutes, something good will show up. And so I often say you have to write 10 and delete five pages the next day or delete two, sometimes delete almost all, but almost always I'll end up with something really good as long as I forgive myself for not writing well while I'm going. So I not only focus for the 25 minutes, I focus writing forward. I don't, editing is, is a different process for me. I hope that helps. Thank you. Next up, we have Carla Hayes. I'm really enjoying this discussion. I always like to hear how authors think and work. Um, something that you said to me really fascinated me, and that was that your fantasy, that your writing is fantasy and, and like you don't, you can't stand bullying men. So you don't make your characters bullying men, even though that was common in that particular, those particular times. My question is, uh, I, I like that approach, but how do you strike a balance between the fantasy of not giving the characters characteristics that you don't like and yet portraying the um, the historical um, ways that uh, amores and the ways people were at that time? I don't know if that makes sense to you, but this is fascinating to me and I'd like to hear your response. Sure. No, that's a very good question. A mixed answer. I will say that some of my heroes initially are not people I'd want to hang out with. I let the heroines whip them into shape. So they're not all like, I, I don't I don't start on day one and they are perfect men. I think both characters have to undergo sort of a learning curve for a book to be interesting. Because if you just have two perfect characters meet on page one, what's going to keep them apart? Why don't they just, you know, have sex, get married, and that's it. It's boring. So you have to have conflict and conflict often arises from people making mistakes. Marriage is complicated and difficult. So I often have my people get married and then make mistakes within marriage. In terms of, in terms of shaping their characters to be historical, one of the things that is true of men now and true of men then is that they have an amazing ability to assume that what they're doing at any given moment is right. I see it a lot as, as chair of a department, for example, if I have a tenure track professor who's a man, he will write an article on something, shoot it off and send it to a, a journal. The journal will reject it and say, you didn't do this and that. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll do this and that and that. And he he makes the changes and shoots it off to another one. And he'll just keep going till it's, till it's finished. And then it's published, which you have to publish or perish for tenure a young woman is much more likely to try to get it perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. There's an article in Iceland that I haven't been able to get my hands on. And until I get my hands on, I can't submit this article anywhere. And therefore, she will have fewer articles when she comes up for tenure. Um, and so those characteristics that I see in men now and in men then really interest me because you want the relationship to be one that strikes a deep chord in the women and, and the men, I do have, you know, over 35% male readers uh, and the male readers and the women, female readers who are reading the book. In other words, you don't want them to be reading it as if they're reading about, you know, wild animals on the Saharas or something. These are people in the past, but, but what's going on has got to resonate with them. I think it's 
fabulous that Eloisa has been talking about the writing and editing process mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. uh, writing is editing. And I think that that's something that a lot of readers aren't aware of. And writers sometimes beat ourselves up because we have to edit so much. Can you talk more about that, perhaps about shaping our writing and editing processes, Eloisa? Sure. One of the main things I see from beginning writers in particular is that they don't finish things. They don't finish mm -hmm. a plot. They don't finish a book. My son has been writing a book for like two and a half years now, you know, and he just, every time I think he's going to finish, he, he, something, he decides, oh, I've got to start this or that over. So it's not something that, that you can be convinced of. You have to do it yourself and you can't have your mother saying, that's not the way to write a book. So this is just a suggestion, but my <laughs> suggestion is that people finish whatever they're doing. And as you're writing a sonnet cycle, write all of them. And then if you're writing a book, you know, sure, go back and edit, but finish it because you can edit a word, a page with words on it. You can't edit a page that is just an idea in your head that's going to be great. And we all start books thinking this is going to be the best. I love this idea. This is so great, so great. And then, you know, you hit the tedious middle and you're dying and you're, you're, you don't have enough air and you're just staggering along. You're convinced your readers are going to be bored out of their mind. I think that's one thing that people don't realize how much those of us who've been published for a very long time are convinced with every book that it's going to be boring, that the readers are going to hate it. And then I'm always so grateful when they don't. And I, I'm always grateful when I realize, oh no, you have learned more, right? I, I learn more every book. But you have to trust that process. Trust that you will learn as you go. Trust that if you finish it, you can go back and edit it. For pacing, for example, readers do not like to be bored. So my books now are far less digressive than they were, say, in the year 2000. It's just the way it is. It, it, people's attention spans have changed. That, it, that it, is very helpful. Those are good insights. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned one aspect there about editing for pacing. What are some of the other themes of editing that you go through as you review your work and continue to hone it? I go through and I ask myself, is this boring? Over and over and over. And it's so hard to cut conversations that you think are just, you know, God's gift to witty conversation. <laughs> I look at them, I'm like, actually, that's really boring. It's not forwarding the relationship. If, if a conversation is on the page and it's sort of funny and witty, but it's not forwarding the further knowledge of the two characters, whoever they are, then it doesn't belong there. Everything has to have a reason. It's something I try to teach beginning writers over and over again. What work is this page doing? What work is this conversation doing? If it's not doing work and you can't identify what it's doing, then you need to cut it. But again, it's a lot easier to cut when you get to the end, because if you cut it right away, you feel as if you're cutting off your own hand. Whereas, you know, a month later, two months later, you look back and you're like, oh, you know, yeah, it didn't quite work. Maybe I can make it funnier. Maybe I can make it better. But then you will know more about your characters as well. So you can say, you know, I really need him to be showing that he's kind of a jerk right now. How can I turn this conversation? So he, he brings out his jerk-like characteristics and the heroine thinks, oh, wow, I don't like him, right? That's setting up for a good conflict there. So what was a blah conversation can become one that really 
teaches the the heroine about your your male character, but also teaches the reader about your two characters and where the conflict is going to be coming up. Excellent, excellent points. Thank you for those. Another question that comes to mind is about challenges in writing in the romance historical fiction genre. Uh, you've talked about, you know, not being boring. You've talked about integrating some uh, fact from the historical fiction era into the story so that people learn. Are there challenges, other challenges in that market? Well, I would say one thing is that you do need to know what what era you're writing in, right? And the, the Regency period, for example, is extremely different from the Georgian period. Georgian period is Marie Antoinette. Uh, Regency period is Jane Austen. In the time of Jane Austen, we're moving towards Queen Victoria, right? So when we get to Queen Victoria, as most people know, relationships become extremely tied down and women mm -hmm. are supposed to be chaste, silent, and obedient. Well, so if you move backwards from there in the Regency period, there's a lot of set rules about how men and women can behave together. And you need to know those. You need to know that a young woman can't waltz at all max until she's been approved by the patronesses. So there are, luckily, it's all over the web. There's lots of information. You could find all this, but you do need to obey those because otherwise why bother writing the Regency? When we move back again to the Georgian period, if you're writing among the nobility, we're in a much looser time. Lots of people married for for reasons of inheritance and money. And those marriages in our time, as we would say it now, did not survive. But they it's almost as if they weren't expected to. Lots of noble women and noble men were living apart at that period. Lots of noble women raised their sons bastards in households of like 14 um, there's wonderful letters that are extant from that period in which women talk about their lovers. So you're in a very, very different point of view and say Desperate Duchesses, which is set in the Georgian period, opens with a husband and wife who've basically been separated, living apart for a great deal of time. She's been living in Paris. He's been living in London and he has a scare with his heart and he he writes her and he's like, you have to come home. We have to have an heir because that's the one thing you had to, you had to give an heir. So she comes back to make the heir. And that you could have that storyline in the Georgian period, in the Regency period, that would be really pretty much out of line, I think. I have a similar story to that in which, so that the Georgian period is called De Desperate Duchesses, but I have a book called Duchess in Love, which is in the Regency period, and they were married as children again, because I find that's a very useful trope. And he, they have written each other letters of great friends, right? He's living in Greece and he's an artist, which is a terrible thing for a Duke to be doing. She has been taking care of the entire household, running the estate. And she writes to him and she's like, look, I've fallen in love. I want you to come home and annul this marriage because of course it's never been consummated. So that is more of a Regency plot, right? He comes back, he walks into a ballroom. He says, who's that beautiful woman? The guy next to him says, that's your wife. That actually happened to the Earl of Essex in, in around 1600. So I borrowed that historical fact, but I moved it to the Regency. You're not going to have this sort of easiness about sex and heirs and babies and lovers that you do when you move to the when you move from the Georgian period to the Regency period or back and forth. In other words, when that dude comes home, he doesn't expect that his wife has been sleeping with her, the person she's in love with. He expects and, you know, gets she's still a virgin. 
there's that the, you need to know the sexual mores of the time in which you're writing. Excellent examples of understanding the period and working within them. Thank you for that. And Kathy, we do have a question if you'd like mm -hmm. or raised hand. Terrific. Anthony mm -hmm. Corona. All right. Anthony. Hi, good afternoon. When you're writing, how do you know when to drop in a spoiler or to foreshadow something? And the second prong of it is if the story takes you in another direction and something you've written is then invalidated, do you go back immediately or do you wait to the edit to kind of redirect what you had done previously? Oh, interesting questions. Okay, so to deal with the second one first, I go back if it's something that is altering my character, one of my two main characters radically. I go back and I rewrite that because I need to know what the nuance is, how to get that scene to work with the new information that I've added in later. And that does often happen. I don't I don't sketch out books. I find they are much more creative if I if I create two characters and then set them into motion or four or six yeah, I'm doing a family. Yeah. So I so I let that happen. Um one thing you do have to look for when you get to the end of a book, and this goes in with the editing question I, that I was asked before, it's very easy for characters to change over the length of a book. You have to go back then and make sure that your character is consistent. So one thing I often do when I'm about two thirds of the way through is I simply open up a new Word document and I write down everything I know about both of the two main characters. By then I've learned a lot more than I knew at the beginning. And I'll also come up with things actually while writing that description of the character. And then I go back and I put those in. So to give you an example, I have a book in which the hero is afraid of the dark. And it just came out of nowhere uh, in the middle of the book when I was writing it. And it turned out that his father had locked him into the drawing room with the, with the body and the coffin of his, of his dead mother. And so... It was really interesting, but I was like, what am I going to do with this? Because I have, you know, alpha hero. Now I have an alpha hero who's scared of the dark. How am I going to make him both maintain his sort of sexy alphaness and have this huge vulnerability? And so I had to go back and, and you know, feed in various things and, and make it work. So something like that, I'll stop and go back. Something smaller I won't fix until the end. Because, again, you don't want to get derailed on the way to the finish line. You can spend, you know, several months editing after that. Let's see, I'm so okay. sorry. I can't remember now the first question. Um, foreshadowing and dropping spoilers oh. in oh. along the way. Okay, so when do I put in spoilers? I, you know, I write romance. So the spoilers are, are small, right? Because generally speaking, you know exactly who's going to end up with whom. And uh, you know where people are going. I have a lot of friends who are writing mystery and suspense, though, and so I've been watching, for example, I have a friend writing a very intense historical historical mystery set in New York in, in the early 1800s. And one thing that she was talking about the other day was how important it is to put in early on, when they mean nothing, the little spoilers that no one almost didn't notice, right? And also the red herrings. So the example for me is that you know, if her character has been made up from, say, people bullying her um, and it's going to lead to an amazing scene in which she's bullied by a whole group of mean girls. I have a, have a book coming out that's on the Amazon Vela page in which some girl actually gets pieces of cake thrown at her. 
I have to seed in those those seeds of self-doubt in her very early. Tiny, tiny, tiny little ones so that when this scene happens, it's incredibly harsh, but we all love her. So often what you're doing when you seed these things in is making your characters lovable. You're dropping in things that make them lovable so that when something really dramatic happens, the readers aren't like, oh yeah, right. They are with you. And then again, by genre, if you're writing mysteries, I, I would, or suspense, I would urge you not to forget the red herrings. Readers And we did have, we do have one more raised hand. Alice, yes. now you may unmute. Thank you so much. And I, I think your students are so extremely fortunate and I wish I were among your students. <laughs> I, I appreciate so much how much you've shared with us so well today. And of course, it's not surprising, but it's greatly appreciated. And I just have a very simple question for you. When I looked through the Braille and audio reading download, the Bard Systems listing of your many books, there was one that had Christmas in the title. And I'm wondering if there's another one that you might suggest for some of us to read during the holiday season. Oh, well, thank you for that question. I have a book called A Fair Before Christmas, which is the second book in a series. But more recently, I also was part of an anthology called A Mistletoe Christmas, which had four Regency writers in it. And I think that's it's about a house party and it's a lot of fun. So that is A Mistletoe Christmas. And the other one is A Fair Before Christmas. And they're both, you know, holiday-ish uh, stories. So I hope you enjoy them. I do want to mention one thing in terms of, um, of Braille, et cetera, and Audible, just for today. So if you're hearing this today, which is 12-1, Audible has an 85% off sale going right now. So a lot of the books that I'm talking about, you could actually get for $3 on Audible at the moment, which is, of course, far less than a credit. Um, you can also pre-order books of mine on there, which, you know, is very helpful for the writer because um, people often ask me why bother to pre-order things. But the fact is that publishers make a lot of decisions based on pre-orders. So when it comes to audio to, to books in particular, they're expensive for publishers to produce. So this is an example about the UK, not about America, but Piatkis, my UK publisher, is looking at the audible editions that are available right now for you know for my seduction series which is up on pre-order to decide whether to do an audible on the next book the next full length novel and that is really difficult because they didn't do the last two books and i got many many letters from people saying i really wish those audible books had been made but they bought the rights to the audible and didn't produce them so when you have a chance if there's an author you love do pre-order those Audible books. Um, and if you're listening to this 12-1 today and you have an author you really like, go to Audible and, and pre-order the credits with the 85% off or the 50% off because it's good for you and it's good for the author. Go ahead, Carla. Quick question, and I should know the answer to this, but I don't. Could you define a red herring? Oh, sure. A red herring is when you drop something into the book that makes it seem like this person is definitely the murderer, but they're not. Dorothy Sayers, for example, wrote a book called Five Red Herrings, and she created five possible murderers in that book. Um, a red herring in terms of a romance 
is more fun because I mean, not more fun, but it's, it's more simple and it's dealt with much more quickly. It would be in a first chapter. If you didn't know, for example, exactly who the hero was going to be or exactly who the heroine would be. And to give you an example of that, I wrote a book in which I had sisters and I was certain that the one sister twin, they were twin sisters, that the one was the heroine who was going to end up with the hero. And so I wrote the back cover copy for the book and it looked exactly as if that was the heroine, right? But when I wrote the book, I switched to the other sister. And so that whole back cover copy is a red herring. The readers read it and they were like, and then they would write me and say, wait a second, I'm sure from the back cover copy that X heroine was going to be your heroine. And, you know, you played a switcheroo on me. Generally, readers mm -hmm. do not you know they they generally like a red herring you don't do it very often in romance i've only had two books like that because i don't think it's really that fair in both cases in mine it it came as the novel changed and do you have anything coming up now you have one that was published in the summer when will be your next release i have um these books coming out on the amazon platform and also on audible which are uh this little series of novellas I wrote that were serialized. So it's mm -hmm. two dances and a duke, two masks and a major. There's three of them. And those are the seduction series. And you can find all the information out on my website, eloisajames.com. Or um, if you're interested in audible books, look look right on their site or on the Amazon site. Then, then next July, I'll have another full-length novel coming out, which is called Viscount in Love. And it's the beginning of a new series book. It's about um, a very uptight Viscount who inherits his sister's two eccentric children. And his fiance instantly elopes with someone else. She doesn't want to deal with these kids. And I gave the children the stories that my daughter was writing when she was eight years old, which were all about serial killers. So it's got a lovely attribute. And my hero has to get married right away. So he marries the sister of his fiance of his former fiance. Oh, thank you. And you're mentioning your children. You've given insight to your family, your children in Paris and love. And is that on Audible? Yes, it should be on Audible. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. It's, say, it's um, really a fun read. I, I also <laughs> wrote a book called Lizzie and Dante, which is published by Mary Bly. I don't know if it's on Bard or not, but oh, it should okay. be on Audible. And Lizzie and Dante, there is a 14-year-old girl whom you will recognize from Paris in Love. And all the little quotes that open the chapter are Anna's quotes. Um, <laughs> the door. <laughs> so, ah, she's hysterical. Yeah, <laughs> and I modeled that character on her. And she's got a big fan club now. That <laughs> so that's, that's Lizzie great. and Dante. Yeah, okay. Thank well, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been and been really wonderful. There's so much information. You, you yeah, I wish I was in your class too. <laughs> just the wealth of information. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. The prompt for next time is use the game clue. Genre of your choice, whether it's historical or contemporary. Let's see what you come up with. My example was to Kathy. I clunked Kathy over the head with a candlestick in the drawing room. Have fun and go with it. Who knows? Maybe you have the beginning of a book. Thank you. And I'll turn it back over to Kathy. Thank you very thank much, everyone. Oh, thank you, Eloisa, for being with us. And just for folks that are listening in, could you spell out your first name, Eloisa? 
Sure. It's Eloisa, E-L-O-I-S-A, and then James, like Henry James. Thank you very much. These conversation and the questions have been really interesting, and I very much enjoyed spending time with all of you. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank Thank you to our community also for your participation today and for our podcast listeners. We hope you enjoyed this compelling interview. We learned so much today. And check out this. In two weeks, on December 15th, we will be having a community highlight and discussion. A very special guest will be profiled that week. And then on January 5th, 2024, as we start off the year, our guest author will be Linda Lale Miller. And we're so excited to have her with us as well. Be sure to visit writingworkswonders.com for these show notes, resources, and abundant resources. You'll find everything available at writingworkswonders.com. You can email us at info at writingworkswonders.com. Above all else, we want you to be encouraged, inspired, and enjoy the wonders of writing. We look forward to being with you next time. Hello. I just think Kathy... And Cheryl just gave us all a wonderful Christmas gift with us <laughs> today. And I yeah. thank you for that wonderful gift. She was absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. Thank you for joining us today on Writing Works Wonders. Kathy and I are thrilled to spend time with you. A tap on that button that says subscribe so you will not miss our show. You can also tap on the link for writingworkswonders.com. It'll take you directly to all the show notes and information that we shared today. Then you can sign up to receive the Zoom link so that you can be live with us when we are recording. You can also contact us at info at writingworkswonders.com. Our phone number is 347-467-0221. We also have a donate button. All donations go to technical expenses that Kathy and I incur in order to keep this podcast going. Kathy and I want you to feel encouraged and inspired and know the wonder in writing. And until next time, our friends, keep on writing. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.